Hello, my name is Dustin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're doing an important director. <laughs> a message director, if you will, Stanley Kramer. You know, Alfred Hitchcock once said that if I have a message to deliver with my film, I would rather just go to Western Union. <laughs> oh! Well, S- Stanley Kramer is a man for whom Western Union was his production office. <laughs> That's right. We're talking about a man who tackled interracial marriage with guests who's coming to dinner race relations with the defiant ones nuclear war with on the beach greed with it's a mad 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 world i, I guess so sure <laughs> he said that himself uh the holocaust with judgment at nuremberg the scopes monkey trial and uh, the division between church and state with inherit the wind and as a producer famously tackled juvenile delinquency with the wild one and <laughs> famously and the scourge of piano playing with uh, the five thousand fingers of dr t <laughs> Stanley Kramer is no one's favorite director, but there's a good chance that a lot of people saw one of his movies, either forced upon them in a school classroom, or they stumbled upon it on a Sunday afternoon on television. This is something I was thinking about while watching these movies this week, because all of these movies, well, not all these movies, he's made... I want to say seven movies that are very famous. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows them. People refer to them even in casual conversation. People bring up Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah, the classic Ashton Kutcher film. (laughs) (laughs) Who watches these movies? No one. No one watches The Defiant Ones. No, I don't think so. No one watches Judgment at Nuremberg. Nope. Um, (laughs) Why watch uh, The Defiant Ones when you could watch Fled, (laughs) the remake of The Defiant Ones? Of course. Why watch It's a Mad, 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 Mad World when you can watch Watch Rat Race? Race. (laughs) Yep. Uh, I was waiting for that to come up even so this is a man whose films as a producer and director earned 85 academy award nominations i the thing about stanley kramer is like he's a message director he's what people would say is like oscar Beatty, big message movies but he made all these movies independently mm-hmm. in a system that did not want him to make these pictures yeah a real auto preminger type. yeah like he was forcing his way through and making by the end of his career these mega productions when when he started he actually just wanted to make little kind of controversial films that dealt with subjects that he thought were important and by the way he was the only director tackling these issues mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases he actually had gigantic financial successes off these movies like these movies were some of them at least were very popular in their day but if they were such controversial subjects how were they so popular will well, because... Uh, Middle brow. Yeah, you know, he's a very liberal director, uh, platitudinous, I oh, guess. Oh, over-emphasis, self-righteousness, lame. I wrote all these adjectives in my notes. <laughs> but I wanted to tackle Stanley Kramer on this episode because I kind of, like a lot of, I guess, cinephiles, mm-hmm. I have a knee-jerk reaction to Stanley Kramer, which is ha- Ugh, yeah. white elephant art, mm-hmm. you know? Pedestrian filmmaker. Cinema du papa. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. so I, I wanted to immerse myself to the extent that I could this week. You know, you watch way more than I thought you were going I to. Watched, I watched four of his films this week. And all the big ones are long. Judgment of Nuremberg, three hours. It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, three hours and 20 minutes or something like In that. In its Roadshow version, which <laughs> yeah, we both experienced yeah, right. this week. Um, carefully reconstructed by the Criterion Collection. And you know, there came a moment on Sunday night when I had a little time before bed and I thought, I'd really like to watch a movie. I'd like to watch something I'd like to watch. No, I should watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. <laughs> so I so I did that because I wanted to I wanted to like get a handle on this man. I wanted to be fair to him. You know? I mean, Stanley Kramer is that filmmaker on the AFI Top 100 that when you get to his films, you're like, 
<sighs> I guess no, I'll nobody watch wants this. to watch it. Nobody wants to watch it. But I will say that after this week, I come away with a more nuanced take on Stanley Kramer. <laughs> uh, he'll never be a favorite director. No. But he has made some movies that I think are pretty good. Well, I was already on the record that Judgment at Nuremberg is a great movie. Yeah. And it's a great movie for a couple of different reasons, whether it's this like weighty material, uh, the great performances, or even the way that it's shot, which, you know, a lot of Stanley Kramer movies, like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, is just kind of there. Static. Yeah, yeah. It's not fancy. It's almost rushed and there's no artistry behind it. This also caught me off guard about Judgment at Nuremberg. This movie by the way is his 1961 film a dramatization of the Nuremberg trials uh, over three hours long. It goes back and forth between scenes in the court which I think a lot of them are based on actual transcripts of the trial and scenes of the head judge Spencer Tracy uh, wandering around a devastated post-war Berlin. Yeah, uh, letting American audiences know that Germany shouldn't get off that easy, right? That's the message of the movie at the end. It's a somewhat complicated movie. Um, I, so first of all, the first thing that caught me off guard about it was the fact that it is like a really good looking movie. Mm-hmm. And since fully half the movie takes place in this one courtroom, I think Stanley Kramer keeps coming up with interesting ways, you know, like ways to keep it visually interesting. There's a brilliant uh, move right at the beginning where uh, Stanley Kramer makes a decision that, like it would have probably happened in real life, uh, the German people being prosecuted don't speak English, so they need translators simultaneously throughout. Mm -hmm. And in the uh, Hunt for Red October style, with one quick zoom in on a character, it like breaks the barrier of, oh, you know, these people are speaking German, but now we're switching to English just to let the audience snow. There are a lot of scenes where, say, the prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney are delivering long, long speeches and Kramer has the camera, you know, circling them. Mm. You know, it's just, lots of long takes and like visually interesting ways to present what is essentially just people talking to each other for three hours. And like all of Stanley Kramer's movies, it's full of speeches. The ideas are bluntly stated, but I appreciated the movie as sort of a compendium of, you know, what are the problems, what are the challenges, what are the philosophical dilemmas of prosecuting the Nazi atrocities? Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, to what extent are these defendants, to what extent are they carrying the whole shame of the German nation? You know, are we prosecuting these defendants for their crimes or for all of the Nazi crimes? And, to what extent can you do that? To what extent does German society, to what extent is the rest of Germany as complicit as they are? Well, they're all complicit. That's what the movie says at the end. Well, like, of course, yeah. it all crescendos into this into this point. There's that scene halfway through the movie where they show actual footage of mm. the Nazi death camps, and then the prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney gives this uh, speech where where he talks about what a great shame it was, how terrible it was that these atrocities happened in his country. But my defendants had nothing to do with this footage. They only made the decision that allowed this to go on. They didn't choose to do this. And it's like, yeah, but you're on the top of this chain, right? Like, Right. And then, you know, we see Spencer Tracy sort of in his nights wandering around and talking to Marlena Dietrich. There's one really moving scene where Marlena Dietrich is like, you know, you can't hate, you have to forget. And like Spencer Tracy like looks around the room at all these Germans like laughing and drinking beer. Mm. And it's like, oh, uh, yeah. That was a a very Shoah-like moment. Yeah. And there there are lots of, you know, like Germany has some atmosphere in this movie. There are a lot of compelling scenes of him looking at the ruins of this country and, Mm -hmm. you know. And he's just an old country lawyer who's never (laughs) left 
the United States before. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you, because you watched it and I didn't, about Stanley Kramer's other big trial movie, Inherit the Wind, which I think you liked. Yeah, I like Inherit the Wind. Yeah. This completely fictionalized take on the uh, monkey trials that happen between if a teacher could teach Darwin's theory of evolution in class or it should be banned like it said in the law of where this whole trial is taking place and Spencer Tracy is the lawyer that comes and defends him I like that Gene Kelly is a, is like I think he's a journalist that hired Spencer Tracy and is just kind of like funding all this and it's again shot <laughs> a like, carpet bagger yes yeah, stark black and white and all these kind of complicated ideas of it's not about if I believe in this it's giving people the opportunity to put it out there so, so you know you're not yeah. stepping on anybody's toes okay so like this is what I think Stanley Kramer when he's at his best can do he mm-hmm. can like aggregate all these different ideas and like you know the, the movies are these sort of uh, collections of rhetorical scenes but like Stanley Kramer has like, like their Socratic dialogue well he has one distinct point of view that he always reaches in these movies at the end yes but he'll give an opportunity to everybody else to kind of vent like even in uh, Judgment at Nuremberg the German lawyer goes like you know what about America like you go talk to the people in Japan and they're complicit in those acts a lot of like what about isms that you see a lot these days as well what do you know about Stanley Kramer's uh, I, I guess Bernie as a filmmaker because you you mentioned that he wanted to like he wanted to make small scale difficult movies when he got back from World War II he and some of his pals actually started a production company and made movies outside of the kind of factory studio line Hollywood system and the way they would do it was that they would rent the stages and then they would shoot their movies very quickly and then they would release them in theaters so you wouldn't have to like own a studio lot like all of the big uh, places did and he was like an independent operator and he produced tons of movies he gave uh marlon brando his first shot so he did movies like champion which is about uh kirk douglas as a boxer or home of the brave which is about kind of racism in the army he did like death of a salesman uh, high noon oh, but, yeah, he produced high noon yeah right? he produced yeah, yeah. high noon and kramer talked about that like at first it was easier to make these movies but then other independent producers caught on to what he was doing so like he had to fight with people who just had more money than him so when he finally transitioned into directing which is something that he always wanted to do he said that like producing was just a way to directing it kind of reached a mega production level much faster than you would expect I saw one of the quintessential Stanley Kramer movies this week The Defiant Ones with Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier from 1958. Of course, we all know this movie, as you mentioned, uh, the inspiration for Fled. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the, the movie with the iconic image of the black convict and the white convict handcuffed together, trying trying to escape, trying to settle their differences. Uh, certainly it is a uh, social issue movie. I liked this movie. Uh, Lean 95 minutes after all the other pictures that you watch. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. And the thing is, it's more than just a message movie. It is a good, like, prison escape thriller. Mm. Uh, you know, it's loaded with cliches. I'm not I'm not sure how many of them were cliches when this movie... <laughs> oh, yeah. But, like, the, the, like, the cliche of, like, they stop at this, like, lonely single woman's house and she's, like, putting the moves on Tony mm. Curtis. Um, but it's, qu- it's quite atmospheric. 
Uh, it's exciting at times. It's full of gargoyle-faced character actors. <laughs> you in- love it! Including Mr. Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. As I, a man who helps them along the way. Uh, a very rough period mm. uh, from the photo that you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> Looks very bad. And it's, of course, very powerfully acted by Curtis and Poache. Probably the best I've seen Tony Curtis. Also, unlike some Stanley Kramer movies, it ends, I think on a more ambiguous note. Typically, Stanley Kramer movies end with uh, Spencer Tracy coming out and summarizing what we've seen (laughs) and telling us the idea that we're supposed to take away from it. Uh, But this one ends, you know, famously, if you've seen I Am Not Your Negro, with Poitier and Curtis trying to jump onto a train that'll take them north and Poitier holding out his arm, holding out his arm, trying to get Curtis. And Curtis is not going to make it, so Poitier jumps off and joins Curtis, and they both get caught. So it's an ambiguous note. I mean, there are some who will read it as, you know, why should this black man have to sacrifice himself on behalf of this reformed white racist, which is a reasonable reading. But, you know, you could also read it as this guy is not able to escape, you know, the shackles, proverbial and literal, of of this society, man. Yeah, I wish Tony Curtis had reached out, grabbed Sidney Poitier, and dragged him to the ground. Right, <laughs> Because right. that would be more of a um, head-on symbol message but like it's more it's a more troubling and ambiguous ending than i was used to from stanley kramer now we're going to talk about two movies (laughs) i think his last two hits it's fair to say yes because after i mean we're not going to talk about uh, revolutions per minute his university uh (laughs) uprising film because after 1970 his career oh he made a lot of movies hello fellow kids (laughs) that was stanley kramer the director he tried so hard to make like counter-cultural movies like the film about a bunch of hippies trying to save buffaloes bless the beast and children there's one i'm kind of curious about that came out in 1979 called the runner stumbles which 36 people have watched on letterboxd that's it that's it wow that's how few people care about Stanley Kramer Mm -hmm. Um, but it has Dick Van Dyke and Kathleen Quinlan playing uh, a priest and a nun who have a forbidden love good man Dick Van Dyke (laughs) we all love Dick Van Dyke in in one of his rare dramatic roles so I am curious about that movie but instead we're going to talk about 1963's comedy smorgasbord it's a mad 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 there are four mad. There are four. I the thought there was three, but you're right. I'm looking at it here. There's four. Yeah. Four is too much. So let's just like this movie. <laughs> yeah. Let's say you're Mr. Message Man. Mm-hmm. You're the most serious filmmaker in Hollywood, and you want to show him. No, I can laugh too. <laughs> I have never had any comedy in my movies up till now. I'm funny. You know, it's like McBain. Let's get silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> yep. Uh, so he decides. Well, I'm because I'm so important. I'm so serious. I can't just make a comedy. I have to make the comedy. I'm going to shoot it on 70 millimeter Panavision. We're going to build the Cinerama Dome in LA (laughs) just to show this movie. That's how big it is. Now, what I found fascinating, but not that surprising, is that you loved this movie as a kid, right, Will? I did. So my my dad is one of many boomers who saw this in first run and had, I guess, fond memories of it. And he and you not know, of laughing, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> probably of having a nice afternoon out and seeing big Cinerama images. Yep. But yeah, I, I you know as a kid I liked you know old comedy guys, so he recommended this movie to me. And yeah, like I think Joe Dante said that for for a kid his age, it was like comedy nirvana, and that's definitely how I felt as an eight year old mm. watching this movie. There's so much stuff in it, so many people falling and hitting each other, and cars going. Well, in the there's lake. sometimes long gaps between them. Oh boy, <laughs> but. 
the thing that I love about this movie, I was listening to the commentary track that's on the Criterion, their lovingly restored version, and the original guy that sets off this madcap chase because... Everyone here listening to this has seen the episode of The Simpsons that parodies this, is yeah. that they think that there's money buried under a giant W. A big W. It's buried under a big W. And in the movie, it's Jimmy Durante who crashes his car and tells all these comedy greats that there's money hidden. But in the script, it was supposed to be Buster Keaton. And I heard um, on the commentary, they were like, yeah, well, the idea was that Buster Keaton was giving it to the next generation of comedians. And I'm like, next generation? Only- They're in their 50s. <laughs> I mean, what's so funny about that is I would say everybody in this movie from top to bottom by the end of the decade were irrelevant. Completely. Like all of them. Yes. Can you name one? I mean, maybe Jonathan Winters. I don't know. Uh, But but like if you ask anybody our age, any of these names, they will look at you blankly. I mean, maybe you've heard of Milton Berle. Yeah, but but by a huge unit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Big Dick Berle. Yeah. By by 1970, Milton Berle was long past his prime, like all the way down to the cameos. Like, oh, oh, amazing cameos. I'll just name I'll just name some of the lead actors in this movie, which are Milton Berle, Jonathan Winters, Buddy Hackett, Mickey Rooney, Ethel Merman, Phil Silvers, Edie Adams, Terry Thomas, Sid Caesar. Don't forget Leo Gorsi, our uh, favorite Bowery boy. Well, okay. Then when you get down to the cameos, you get people like Eddie Rochester Anderson, Peter Falk. Yeah. Isn't it? Strangely. He has a pretty big role in it too. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, Leo Gorsi, Don Knotts, Jerry Lewis. Oh, the guy from Zombies on Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Benny for a couple seconds. Mm. The Three Stooges for like two seconds. Uh, one shot. Jerry Lewis has uh, one of the better gags in the movie, I think, running over Spencer Tracy's hat. And he makes a big face. He's like, whoa. And these are just some of the names you'll recognize, folks, because there are a lot of people in this movie, like, I don't know, Joey Brown. People, Zazu Pitts is in this movie. Mm-hmm. People who are really forgotten today. <laughs> yep. <laughs> really forgotten today. And this is a particularly backwards looking movie because it's as if Stanley Kramer did didn't really keep track of what the developments were in comedy since, oh, I don't know, the silent era. Yeah. So he's like, look, get me all the big comedy stars. It's like that episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns wants to build a baseball team. (laughs) It's Smithers is like, uh, they've been dead for decades. But it's also that... Not even the Keystone style. It's like what you think the Keystone style oh, was, which God. is a lot of car chases, a lot of a lot of people falling off things. Well, you know what? This is a big movie, and that's what I liked about it. It's like yeah. big, wide, empty spaces. Oh man! I mean, I liked I liked looking at this movie, and it's full. It like takes place in the desert yeah. mostly. Uh, everyone's like making like crazy expressions the entire time, but there's not really any jokes in the film. Yeah, the version we watched is over three hours, and I would say, like, in terms of laughs, in terms of, like, really funny stuff, I'd say there's maybe five minutes of, like, really tough stuff. I mean, there's a great slapstick sequence fight in a gas station that is, like, the highlight of the movie. Okay, I'm actually gonna push back on that because I remembered that Mm -hmm. Jonathan Winters tearing down the gas station as being like one of the funny parts of this movie. Watching it this time, I found it a bit depressing. Well, here's the fine line between like laughing at something the way the director intended and (laughs) laughing at the fact that this is what you're seeing on screen and the people think that it's funny because that's like all of 1941, which is Steven Spielberg's 1941, which is like 
Mad Mad World on steroids, where it's like that gas station exploding for two and a half hours. Right, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess it's sort of funny if you look at it from a slanted angle of look at Jonathan Winters absolutely terrorized poor Arnold Stang. <laughs> yep, just completely wrecking this gas station, which I think they set up like they just opened. Right. I mean, it's interesting to look at. Well, every character in this movie is just despicable, and you oh, hate yeah. them, and you don't really want to follow them or care about them because. Stanley Kramer, all that matters to him are their personalities as comedians. Like, there's no time taken to, like, set up anybody. It's supposedly a movie about how greed, you know, mm-hmm. rot, rots the soul, but people are pretty pretty rotten from, <laughs> from the get-go. Minute one. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the scenes of the movie that I find sort of funny are, I like the part where Milton Berle and Terry Thomas are having a fist fight. Yeah, that's pretty that funny. That was funny. What about at the end where it's like a giant stop-motion ladder that's moving from left to right and throwing people into the air? I assume killing them. I mean, it's certainly interesting to look at. <laughs> yeah. Willis O'Brien, who did the special effects on he King did. Kong, did the effects on that scene. I think a lot of the individual performers are clearly, like, really, really working. Oh, Mickey Rooney is just, like, sweating oh through God. the whole film. He's like, Aah! I was watching this great this great clip of uh, Mickey Rooney at the premiere of of the movie and the premiere is sort of a bit funereal it's like it's like it's like there's a fly on the wall uh, camera that's just following around Stanley Kramer he's like I don't know I've been I've been on it so long I don't know if it's funny it's I I just want to get away from it and like Mickey Rooney runs in front of the camera and it's like oh gee what a swell show gang <laughs> Jimmy Dillickers Jimmy Dillickers Jimmy Dillickers you know I think Phil Silvers as the guy who has the car go in the lake I think he's pretty funny mm-hmm. just yeah. as a presence well he's the most like evil character in the whole film and, betraying yeah. everybody that comes upon his path and like there's kind of so much stuff in it like particularly around the intermission when it's going back and forth between all these scenes of things exploding <laughs> can you imagine the audience just like stepping out into the lawn during the intermission being like oh my god we have another two hours of this but man this movie sure has long errors in it I mean, <laughs> yeah. just a lot of scenes of people at the side of the road well so the version that stanley kramer supposedly preferred was the cut down version which yes. he said like cut down a lot of like people entering rooms leaving rooms expositions that didn't really matter a lot of scenes at police headquarters mm-hmm. of, of spencer tracy following these guys you know my issue with it was that i was with it up for like two hours Mm -hmm. but then i realized that it wasn't gonna reach that like fever pitch i was hoping it was gonna reach right like it wasn't like i guess the films that ripped it off like blues brothers where like cars are crashing all over the place well you know i was trying to think like the common knock on this movie is that it's not funny is that it's not funny and that like a big elaborate huge budget three-hour comedy is an oxymoron Mm -hmm. because you know comedy is is supposed to be fleet and surprising and you know usually a joke wears out its welcome if it's told too long uh i sound like a grand old man (laughs) that's right if it bends it's funny if If it it breaks breaks, it's it's not not funny funny. uh but I was thinking about the Blues Brothers watching it, and I think one reason why I like the Blues Brothers better than this is because, you know, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi are, like, these pillars of calm in the middle of the storm. Or, like, Playtime with Jacques mm-hmm. Tati. It's like there's a lot of calm in the middle of all the all the spectacle. But in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, everybody's crazy. Right. So no one's funny. Exactly. <laughs> that's the big issue. The only thing that's not crazy is the giant cinerama uh, framing of it. I mean, you can't fault the cinematography. You can't fault the stunts. And, uh, you know, I'll always have some affection for this movie. But this is a film that I think that it was such a big 
big hit because people were happy to see, you know, figures that were on TV all the time yeah. uh, blown up in a way that they had never seen before. Like um, Ethel Merman. It's like, <laughs> whoa, Broadway's Ethel Merman finally on the big screen. Wow, Jack Benny up yeah. there, 50 foot tall. Yeah. So I think that Stanley Kramer's most famous film, though, is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Well, this is a movie that's constantly brought up in the context of just being like lame, lame, you know, the worst kind of old liberal white guy, like like the green book of its day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is. And it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not very good, folks. It's I mean, you know, the premise. You got Sidney Poitier and you got Catherine Houghton, who is just a terrible character in the film. (laughs) She's the worst. I mean, I had never seen this film and watching it. I'm like, oh, man, I can exactly understand why people gravitated to it as much as they did in the sense that, like, it's not like Spencer Tracy as the father of um, this young woman who is 23 in the film and Sidney Poitier is 37. It's like, oh, there's other reasons you shouldn't get married. (laughs) Um, He's not like, ah, I'm racist and I get one over. He's the liberal parent who is the most liberal man in town. But when he's actually presented with this conflict, that's when he pushes against it. But you kind of know, like... You know exactly where it's going (laughs) when you start it, right? You know, you're right. I am wrong, and I have no more problems with this entire situation. So it's, yeah, just kind of a wildly repetitive movie where these two characters, this young interracial couple in love, come home, and everybody keeps having the same kind of awkward conversations for you know, a hundred minutes. I mean, I don't think this marriage is going to last. And I think uh, the young daughter is just doing it to strike back at her parents, uh, marrying Sidney Poitier after being together for 10 days. She's again, 23. Now, Sidney Poitier, uh, of course, the couple says that they'll get married no matter what her parents think. But Sidney Poitier, he doesn't actually believe that he definitely wants Spencer Tracy's unreserved approval. Yeah, he's looking for a way out of this whole situation. He wants Catherine Hepburn's un- unreserved approval, Ooh, too. S- Sidney Poitier says something he, uh, uh, definitely of its time where it's like, you know, we will have children. It wouldn't be a marriage if we didn't. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yikes. <laughs> but then... Uh, Sidney Poitier's parents come for dinner as well and of course I mean dinner is never had in this movie I kept waiting for dinner to be had <laughs> it's about to be had just as it, <laughs> the, just as it credits ends roll, yeah. uh, but Sidney Poitier's parents come and of course they're very disapproving of this too yeah so both you know families that's right yeah uh, of course Sidney is not groveling to, to his parents for their approval and it, there isn't one of their friends who's like really disapproving and anyone who shows like any kind of disinterest is completely dismissed and like we won't talk to you anymore but also there's that one scene where Sidney Poitier is lecturing his father and he says something like you think of yourself as a colored man I think of myself as a man and it's like yeah okay but it's two white guys talking about this but I'm sorry but the movie doesn't view him as as a man but that's what I'm saying (laughs) that is like a line that was written by a white guy yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's like okay give me give me some proof that this movie regards him as more than just a because it's just othering him and i mean it's a classic problem where it's like oh Sidney poitier he's one of the good ones because he's like the greatest doctor in the world that everybody knows and there's also the scene where Catherine houghton is talking to Catherine hepburn about it Mm. and says oh i'm sure you're wondering if we've been to bed together we haven't he didn't want to yeah, you know, because because you he's know, the greatest course, uh, he, person ever. Yeah, he's not he's not defiling her before mm-hmm. marriage, you know. And then, of course, after all these conversations are had over and over and over again, finally, 
Spencer Tracy, the figure of patriarchal authority. And it all comes down to him. He he has to come in and deliver a a five-minute sermon where he says, well, we've heard all the arguments, and there are arguments on both sides, (laughs) and they both have their points, but at the end of the day, this couple loves each other, and that's all that matters. Which is like, oh, okay, I could have predicted that. (laughs) Also, Spencer, you're not going to believe that, like, the next day. You're going to wake up and be like, no, I want this thing off. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it's not good. Spencer Tracy, by the way, died 17 days later. I like the the comment that you made that it's like a Mondo movie watching it, (laughs) because because he's very sick. Have you ever read Mark Harris's book? Of course I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it chronicles the production of this movie and how basically he was really at death's door making this Mm. movie. He could only do a few minutes a day and he would just collapse. Spencer Tracy was uninsurable and it was uh, Stanley Kramer that had to step in and said if the movie slows down or there's any problems I will pay for it myself. Yeah, wow. (laughs) I mean the movie was a big hit. Spencer Tracy was nominated um, for a supporting Academy Award and it was a film that was also like attacked a lot when it came out. People called um Stanley Kramer, un-American. They they called them all sorts of terrible but stuff. But he probably, yeah, I guess he got attacked on all sides mm-hmm. because, or or from his left and his right. Yeah. Because I know that he felt quite wounded by some of the attacks saying that the movie was sort of, you know, white liberal hogwash. It is. Because, because he took the movie on a tour of uh, colleges. Nine universities. To, yeah, he tried to engage with the young'uns <laughs> about it. Because uh, he wanted to be like Truffaut and Godard going around, like spreading the gospel of change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, after this movie, it was, I mean, he made more movies, but it was nobody liked him. Yeah. Yeah. Time has passed him by. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you say about the guy? His movies. Well, you know what? He monuments. made a lot of big movies in quick succession. So you got to give him that like Defiant Ones, 1958, Inherit the Wind, 1960, Judgment at Nuremberg, 1961. Good run. Yep. It's a mad world, 1963. Yeah. Wow. You know, maybe it was just that burst of energy. And he was one of the guys that like. You know, he was willing to push forward and do these things. And he, he just... He put his money where his mouth was. Yeah, he just continued to make movies about, like, ah, the rise of uh, World War Two and stuff like that. It's like, he's on campuses. Yeah, and, and things that he was just out of touch with. And, you know, it's a bummer, but he made movies that will probably continue to be forced upon high school students to this day. Movies that will remain on lists of movies. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you take a chance on one or two of them, uh, you might have a good hey, time. Judgment of Nuremberg... Uh, pretty great. Very yep. good. Yeah. So check that one out. We interrupt your regular scheduled programming to thank the new Patreon subscribers of the Important Cinema Club, which include Christopher Jones, AJ Serrano, Roy Den Boer, Theodore Fox, Liam Rennie, Samuel James Adams, and Matthew Farley. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We couldn't do it without you. I'd also like to remind you to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Every review makes such a big difference and gets the word out there. So if you could just take like five minutes to give us a star rating and write a few words, me and Will would really appreciate it. We'd also appreciate it if you followed us on Twitter. You can follow Will at Will Sloan ESQ or me at DeClue J, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and then the letter J and just sharing the important cinema club on your social media when you put it out there even if you don't have that many followers we could get a new listener and again that makes all the difference I'd also like to note that there's a contest currently going on for Patreon subscribers if you go to 
the newest post that was released with this episode, just comment that you'd like to enter the contest and you'll be entered to win a Godzilla Blu-ray. So just go to patreon.com slash the important cinema club if you're a subscriber already or become a subscriber and enter the contest. There's a really good chance that you'll probably win. And on the note of Blu-rays, at goldninjavideo.com, there's still Local Legends and Thundering Mantis Blu-rays available, but some of the stuff is going out of print. For example, the Wolf Devil Director, the Pearl Chang Collection, is unavailable because we sold out all 200 copies. Now, some of the stuff is still available, so if you're waiting to pull the trigger, now is the time to grab all those Gold Ninja Video releases that you've been kind of eyeing because it may be too late by the time you finally grab them. Again, that's goldninjavideo.com where you can find all the available releases. And now, back to our regular scheduled programming. Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. You can send us um, your questions or comments at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Andy Bolzover, and he goes, Hello, Justin and Will. When I was a kid, Teen Wolf was considered a classic on the level of Back to the Future, Star Wars, and Indiana Jones. Okay. Myself and my friends wore out VHS tapes watching the many iconic moments, such as when Michael J. Fox surfs on top of the Styles van to the Beach Boys, brainwashes a guy with his werewolf powers, selling him beer, and dazzles his school with his basketball abilities. Nowadays, Teen Wolf is never talked about. Are we living in some sort of Bernstein Bears-type parallel universe? where Teen Wolf didn't have the same colossal cultural impact? It's the only possible explanation I can think of. Please discuss this on your excellent podcast, preferably as a part of a six-part series on Teen Wolf. Well, on that note, I have to point out, a Teen Wolf Blu-ray came out from Shout Factory last year. Uh -huh. There was like a six-part documentary on it that was three hours oh long. God. So the fans are still out there. <laughs> and with that note, I've never seen Teen Wolf. <laughs> I've never seen Teen Wolf either. I've seen Patreon clips episode? of it on TVS yeah. playing here and there. I know it only as, you know, <laughs> just a disembodied signifier. You don't know it as the pop culture um, old wives tale of the guy with his dick out at the end? No, no. You've never heard that story no, before? No, no. What, what is it? <laughs> is that at the end there's a shot of a crowd and there's a guy that looks like he has like his dick out and he's waving it around. Oh, it's like how you th people say there's the munchkin hanging in the background it's, of well, it's, Wizard of Oz. It's pretty clear in the movie, but it's like not quite clear what's going on. So does he actually have his dick out? Nah, the documentary uh, supposedly goes into this and it's like the JFK, like, <laughs> back and to the left. Right. And what it's been decided is that it's actually his shirt tucked in and pulled in through a zipper. I mean, it's the last logical explanation, but Occam's Razor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe you and I should watch that movie sometime. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Watch Teen Wolf. Yeah. I mean, it's something that gets talked about all the time. Yeah, but always in kind of a derisive way. Yeah, jokey way. I mean, I think that the true masterpiece is Teen Wolf Two. Yeah, where Jason Bateman is a boxing werewolf. Yeah, I mean, if if you didn't bring it up, I would. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so uh, we shall return to this Teen Wolf conundrum uh, later on. You know what? I just have to say, I'm glad that some stuff, like, just hasn't continued to, like, just be popular in everyday culture. Uh, actually, you know what? I agree. I, th yeah. I think there are some things, like, each generation shouldn't be expected to carry everything. Mad World. Just, yeah. like, push it away. Yeah. <laughs> Teen Wolf. It's, it's okay that we don't talk. Michael J. Fox is back to the future. Yeah, yeah. Like, he gets one. <laughs> yeah, and it's like... Some things are good for cer certain people in their time. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So what are we talking about uh, on our Patreon this week, Will? 
Well, we are returning to a favorite topic of ours, Matt Farley, the poet of Manchester, New Hampshire. Now, you brought this up because you wanted to return to it because I don't have enough Matt Farley in my life for the last few months. (laughs) Right. Well, you, you of course, just put out Local Legends on a beautiful Mm Blu-ray that I've been enjoying. Uh, So, And it kind of sent me on a Matt Farley uh, wormhole. uh, Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah, or rabbit hole is the word you're looking for. Odyssey, if you will. Yeah, so I'm eager to... Just, just have a chat with you about Matt Farley. Will we be the first podcast to ever talk about a movie that, until I release this Blu-ray, was unreleased? Yes, we will. <laughs> Can I just say that I think my proudest accomplishment on the Important Cinema Club is that we've put Matt Farley on the... <laughs> on the world stage? Is that what you're getting Well, to? okay, Matt Farley was on The Tonight Show before us, but I feel, <laughs> I feel like we've got his movie's fans. Yes. You know? Even if it's just, like, five, that's all that matters. I mean, we've received lots of emails of people saying, like, oh, you introduced me to Matt Farley, yeah. I never heard of I think him. it's more than five. Too. Yes. I think it's somewhere between five and a hundred. I'm being humble here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm being anti-Matt Farley. <laughs> so we're going to talk about uh, Local Legends again, which you revisited, yeah. that movie, and you watched other ones too. You watched Manch Vegas. Yeah, and I watched Obtuse Todd. Yep. Oh, uh, that secret movie. It? Yeah. No, it's fine. You okay. can say it. I said it on the episode where we talked about the Blu-ray for the first time. Right. So if you want to listen to the episode, check it out on Patreon. $5 a month, you get that one and all of our back catalog. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So what are we talking about next week? Well, speaking of things that, you know, maybe future generations don't need to carry with them, we are talking about the real kings of comedy, Abbott and Costello. So I have probably only ever seen Abbott and Costello... Uh, meet, meet Frank, Frank Sarah, of course, yeah. and maybe like one or two shorts, and that's it. Yeah, I have no other kind of memory of laughing at Abbott and Costello other than that. I definitely grew up with them. I feel very fondly towards Abbott and Costello. You know, I wouldn't necessarily put them in the pantheon of great comedians or, or Ooh, the greatest comedians, okay. I should say. Uh, but I think I am actually interested in exploring <laughs> that. It's like these these journeyman burlesque comics who made it and became icons. And uh, when Will proposed this topic, I went, "Oh, did you buy that?" factory box set and you need to find a reason to watch it <laughs> and and yes <laughs> that but, is correct. but i also particularly after this week yeah after watching guess who's coming to dinner i want to laugh <laughs> i, I want to laugh i want to have fun so i think we should watch buck privates uh, hold that ghost hold that ghost uh, frankenstein frankenstein you don't even need to watch it you've seen it enough times should so. we i mean avoid frankenstein no, no no we should do frankenstein but like i'm wondering should we do like one of the really later ones like Ugh, meet God. the mummy yeah like, we have to we'll do meet the mummy okay. people like joe dante talk that one up to high heaven but you've seen it recently and yeah but i'll watch it so. i've seen it within the last five years so, so maybe it will be a rediscovery now that you're more cosmic bright that's right <laughs> all right so that's what we're doing next week until then my name's justin glue i'm will sloan thanks for listening Last night, the Laser Blast Film Society, the screening series that is run by me and Peter Kaplowski, had the great honor to do a 35 millimeter screening of a film called Star Kid. I, I laugh when I think about it. <laughs> what is Star Kid? Well, I had no idea what it was until I was looking years ago at the U of T University of Toronto print archive collection, and I saw the film and I went, "What is this?" So Star Kid. I, I, I could have told you because <laughs> I remember when it came out. Yeah, and you know when I saw the poster and. When when Peter was talking about how it haunted him on the back of Disney Adventure, that made me think I must have seen it as well, but just not registered what it was. It was not a big hit. No, it opened theatrically. And probably closed a week later. 
but it was a movie that if I had seen it when I was a kid, I would have loved it because yeah. it had all the stuff that I like. It has monsters. It has a kid hero. It has, I don't know, people being thrown through buildings, comic books, all this good stuff. I'll tell the folks the plot of Star Kid, the <laughs> 1998 classic. It stars, who's the kid from Jurassic Park? I don't know Joseph. His name. Yeah. Uh, Joseph something. Anyway, the kid from Jurassic Park stars as this put upon kid, just a nerdy, shy uh, little boy uh, who, who dreams of, you know, having this nice girlfriend but he's constantly uh, tormented by the large bully at school. That's right. <laughs> and one night he is trapped at home and his dad has gone to work in the middle of the night. His dad's a single dad, unfortunately. The, the mother died and uh, now he's just basically a latchkey kid. Mm-hmm. With his sister who doesn't want him to ruin her life. That's but- right. Uh, a asteroid hits the Earth, or meteorite, I don't remember which one it is, and inside of it is a very um, well-sculpted, especially in the buttocks, um, <laughs> alien suit that the boy from Jurassic Park steps into, and now he has a super powerful armor that he spends the entire night, it takes place over one night, just torturing his bullies, um, trying to figure out how to pee, <laughs> and finally, obviously, fighting off intergalactic invaders. Now, this alien suit with the well-sculpted ass <laughs> it is its own sentient being yeah like it titty bomb like if you will <laughs> it needs somebody to control it but it also talks and there are lots of scenes of the kid trying to tell it jokes it's like it's like terminator 2 right yeah you know and it like the suit doesn't understand like yeah. that is not factual hasta la vista baby you know? <laughs> yep at the end they do like a fist bump <laughs> Right. Yep. Uh, but eventually the kid needs to help the suit save the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, had I seen this movie in the 90s, I think I would have looked at some of these special effects and just... Yeah, dismissed it I, I wouldn't have thought yeah. anything of it because all movies look like this now so if you look on Letterboxd this movie has like one one and a half stars yeah and you know going in when it's I was it's not great I'm no, just gonna say that but you know I'm gonna use the old chestnut of like movies like this aren't made anymore number one it's super scary like if I had seen this when I was five it would have given me like an earnest scared stupid style like ooh I do not like this <laughs> I mean while it doesn't kill anybody which was like the line that like really freaked me out it is directed by a horror director. So everything is like shot like a horror set piece. Like even the kid in the suit is like always popping out of the dark and like spooking people. There's a scene in this movie where the kid is in the, the star kid suit and goes to the fairgrounds because he wants to basically stalk the girl that he has a crush on, Mm -hmm. but he loses control of the suit and the suit (laughs) starts doing a mass shooting, just firing away at everything. And I don't think anyone dies, No, uh, but it's, but it's horror. It's a very loaded image today. (laughs) I can't control myself. And then another thing I love, spoiler alert, folks, for the 1998 film Star Kid. Yeah. At the end of the movie, after the world has been saved, there's some kid at school who's selling Star Kid's t-shirts because he's a hero now. But the thing is, nobody sees the Star Kid save the Earth. Well, they take a photo of him when the oh. Ferris wheel breaks and he catches them. But but do they know that he is the guy who saved the Earth? Do they? Do no, they, they know don't. They just know it's an alien. They, okay, they just know what they know is that this creature perpetrated a mass shooting <laughs> yes. at the fairgrounds, but then saved one of the kids. Sa- well, yeah, but but. <laughs> They don't know they saved the earth. No. Why would they make shirts about like that'd be like making an Elliot Rogers shirt? <laughs> Listen, it's a perfectly set up joke. A teen earlier on is saying, Oh, all I want to do when I grow up is make t shirts and it pays <laughs> off. You're right, it's perfect. But you were saying that like you wouldn't have appreciated it because it's filled with like 
practical effects. Like the main villain is such a weird design that's filled with spikes. He doesn't have eyes. He has like ears where his eyes should be. And he like uses echolocation and really grossly all the weapons he pulls off of his body. Like it's just like slimy, yeah. squishy, like... <laughs> Yeah, very cool costume. I like yeah, it. Yeah, if it had been done now, it would have been like, ugh, super lame CG. And, you know, even the Starkhead suit, it looks rubbery and mm-hmm. tangible, and it's got an ass that you just want to put your hands <laughs> on. And when there's action scenes, like the um, suits are thrown through houses and there's giant explosions. Lots of sparks. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so there was much to enjoy. I I have an allergy to movies that have prepubescent kids talking all the way through. Why? Ah! Listen, when you look in the mirror, sometimes you won't like what stares back at you, Will. That doesn't bother me. It's one of those classic 90s movies. It's like, it'll inject like really heavy drama in the middle of a picture where he's like, oh, my mom died of cancer. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, I will show her to you once more. All family comedies, uh, children's movies from the 90s had either a divorced parent Mm -hmm. or a widower. I love movies too where the kids are like in mortal danger. Like they will die if like they don't get out of the situation, which is not always the case with animated films because I'm trying to think of like the last kind of movie like Star Kid that I saw in theater or had been released in theaters and I can't really think of it off the top of my head. Wow. Yep, I mean, it was a golden age, I guess, yeah. back then. Stuff like uh, Dinosaur City, uh, <laughs> Dinotopia. The, the Quest for Camelot. Yeah, I don't know. Theodore Rex. Well, that one's animated. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, you know, it was great to be able to see it up on the big screen where I can guarantee you we will be the last people to ever watch this print. And I want to say the U of T Media Commons print of it is beautiful well it was probably struck like you said maybe played once and then was donated to the media commons yeah because the studio i think it was lionsgate which was previous distribution companies in canada before then they were probably like we don't want to store this here you can have it that's why they get all that weird stuff but yeah the uft media commons is not going to let the prints go out anymore they have like very strict rules now well they're looking at their policies yes because they don't want to lend stuff out right they're like we're an archive we're not supposed to lend stuff out and it's like what why do you have these movies? Oh, tragic. I know. I mean, I don't want to live in a world where we can't watch Star Kid on 35 millimeter.